morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author J. Ryan Straddle, whose latest novel, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, will be published April 18th. Jay, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Charlie. So Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club is your third novel. It comes on the heels of two very successful books. How do you approach a new project? Do you say, hey, what worked before? Let me, let me build on that. Do you try to set out in a new direction? What's what? How does it begin for you? Wow, such a great question. I usually sit down and ask myself three questions, and they're, what do I want to learn more about? What am I afraid of? And what do I want to see more of in the world? And from there, I come up with an ending, and then I work backwards from the ending. Uh, I figure if I know my ending, I have a pretty good idea of what my themes are going to be. And once I lock those into place, the characters that can be equipped to work within those themes and explicate them develop. And then I sit on the characters for a while in my head until they start talking to me, and then I start writing scenes with them. I'll usually write a scene that ends up somewhere in the middle of the book first. I write the book out of order. I tend not to write at the beginning and go forward, but that all adds up to a pretty lengthy process. It took me three and a half years to write my last two books mm-hmm. a piece. Um, whereas my first book, which I'd outlined a bit more and had a more ironclad strategy going in, only took me a year to write. So with this fourth book I'm trying to write now, I'm I'm doing more outlining at the beginning than I than I had done for either of my second or third novel. But I got to admit, Charlie, when I sit down to write, I feel like I'm writing my first novel all over again. I yeah. I feel like I haven't learned a thing. <laughs> I, I sit down and I look at document one on Microsoft Word blank page, and I go, okay, well, now what? Now what the hell do I do? <laughs> like I try to summon any of the old tricks that I thought of to write short stories when I was a younger writer and only wrote short stories like think of uh like I'd open with a sentence that's an argument that's difficult to defend or <laughs> or something that sounds puzzling that I'm gonna have to explain like for example like the first line of my first novel was Lars Torvald loved two women and I thought oh okay that's a fun place to start because as as I explicate that his story will emerge but that's also a first sentence that, okay, you're gonna have certain assumptions about this guy based on that first sentence that I'm I'm steadily gonna disabuse. He ends up being like the most morally incorruptible character in the book. So to introduce him with this implication of bigamy is uh is goofy footed. But th- that was the kind of bag of tricks I used to pull from when I'd start writing novels or stories, and I'm a little less reliant on that now. But I'll fall back on it if I have to. Yeah, I love what you talk about the blank page. I I often feel that the the one great advantage that computer users have over the old days of the typewriter is that we only have to look at that blank page once instead of Mm. every 250 words. That's true. That's true. 
That's true. You don't have a whole box of blank pages staring at you. In exactly. The room. Yeah. So you've been called the king of the Midwestern novel. What? Tell us about the role that Whoa. setting plays in in your novel and the and the setting of the American Midwest in particular. Well, first of all, I don't think I'm the king of anything. Not even my <laughs> own house. I think my three year old lays claim to that. But I I, I really love the Midwestern setting, and uh, as a young reader, I was very hungry for it. I wanted to see more representations in the Midwest and Minnesota in particular in the novels I was reading. I just didn't encounter a lot of those novels. So when I became a writer and I thought, well, when I became a writer, I've always been a writer, but when I but uh when I started writing books on the publishable side of my skill level, <laughs> when I developed my skill enough that other people wanted to read my books uh or read what I was writing. I thought this Midwestern setting is really unrepresented uh, still or underrepresented. I don't want to say it's unrepresented. Obviously, it, there's scores of wonderful Midwestern writers, uh, certainly more than I than I was aware of when I was a young reader in the 80s and 90s. So I feel like, oh, good, I don't have to speak for this region. I'm adding to a conversation that's that's been going uh a long time and it's been as is now as robust as it's, i feel it's ever been um but that said i still feel like where i'm from is a bit of an underdog and sometimes misrepresented often ignored and well when i think about where to set a book and where to set the characters uh my mom also comes to mind she's who i write my books for and she was born in fargo north dakota lived her entire life and the northern Midwest. And, you know, quite frankly, if I'm writing for her and I'm writing about her and people like her, that's where they're going to have to be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I so I live in North Carolina, uh, which is oh, cool. typically considered to be in the South. And we have a lot of I've had a lot of discussion with other Southern writers, other North Carolina writers about sort of the difference between a person who writes novels that are set in North Carolina or they're set in the South versus a person who writes Southern novels or North Carolina novels. Do you, do you think there's something that makes something a a Minnesota novel or a Midwestern novel as opposed to just a novel that happens to be set in that particular place? The characters. Hmm. Yeah, the characters' attitudes and values in the setting, if they reflect attitudes and values typical of that setting, typical of that setting at that time, and or challenge those typical attitudes and settings. If 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 they're in any way in conversation with how Midwesterners see themselves and have seen themselves and how they see the people they love and the people they interact with every day, then I think that's what makes it a Midwestern novel as opposed to just one set in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, you could set Die Hard in Minneapolis and that doesn't make <laughs> a Minnesotan book, you know, that's a great example, like a plot driven novel where the setting is kind of secondary. Yeah. Um, but if you have a character-driven novel, you know, a novel that I guess more traditionally has fallen in the upmarket or literary realms of fiction, then you could say, I think, with a bit more honesty, this is a Midwestern novel because of the attitudes of these characters. Mm -hmm. uh, so, would you say that's true of Southern novels as well? Would you say well, that's yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, ones I, I get different answers from different people. A lot of people say that it has to do with the relationship between the character and the land. Um, sure, yeah, so absolutely. That's a, that's a big, that's a big element. 
Um, well, so you talk about character-driven novels, and to me, this this uh, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club is a character-driven novel. Tell us a little bit, without you know giving away too much, tell us a little about a novel and, and its main characters. Yeah. Uh, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club is the story of two restaurant families. One is the Prager family. They own a chain of diners, kind of modeled on Perkins, Bob Evans, Denny's, that kind of thing that in the history of this novel's um, narrative began as a independently owned single restaurant on Highway 61 Southeastern Minnesota that success engendered into a franchise covering over a dozen states and hundreds of locations. Uh, so the main character we follow in the Prager family is Ned, who is the grandson of the founder. And he's a nice guy. He's got a big heart. He doesn't really have a head for business, but he's a good people person. Yeah. And he finds himself as the oldest son of the current CEO and president, the heir to this empire. And he's got mixed feelings about it because he doesn't really feel that he's best equipped for it, but it's nonetheless expected of him. And he meets and marries a woman named Mariel. Mariel is the granddaughter of one of the original owners of the Lakeside Supper Club, which is a family-owned, uh, one location only, restaurant in northern Minnesota. And unlike Ned, Mariel has very enthusiastically accepted her birthright and ha somewhat has hewn her identity to the stake of this supper club. She's there almost every day, and she's the load-bearing wall. <laughs> um, she and Ned uh, have friends and relatives that come and go. Uh, they have children, but they're the center of the book. Uh, these two scions of restaurant families, these two grandchildren of restaurant founders. And uh, through them, they argue within themselves, within their family and friend units about the direction of Ned's franchise and Muriel's restaurant and which ones are viable long term. And how would that make it out? And how would that happen? Um, and having children is a big part of that. And when they have children, they they think about which path is our child going to take? Uh, they they come to feel that they're mutually exclusive, that you can't own and operate a supper club effectively and run a successful <laughs> franchise of homestyle diners, uh, which is probably true. You probably one of those two would be compromised. So I get to contrast different values of how Americans eat, particularly in the Midwest. I get to talk about concerns around legacy, uh, ideas and concepts of what we expect of the next generation and how much of our own values are incorporated into that expectation. As a new father, I became a dad for the first time in December 2019 while I was writing this book. And yeah, that certainly recalibrated a lot of my notions of legacy and thinking about what my hopes and dreams are for this child and how his hopes and dreams may have nothing to do with those. And while interviewing separate club owners for this novel, I found, you know, there wasn't always enthusiasm from generation to generation over the idea of running a restaurant that they were expected to work in for cheaper for free from a young age. So I wanted to put that in as well, that, hey, not every generation is totally jazzed about their birthright. And the inherent drama that comes with that, I thought this could make it a good novel.
all yeah. these uh, <laughs> all, all of these various conflicts and schemes and uh, family members. So, um, you know, you've used the term supper club several times, which is not a term I had heard before I saw the title of this book. What, tell us what a supper club is. How, what's, what's the culture of the supper club? Can I have one of my characters describe it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, this is uh, how Mariel puts it. Uh, she's the owner at the time we meet her at the beginning of the book. She says this, Every summer weekend, the horseshoe-shaped bar and its wood-paneled lounge were packed with people fresh from fishing boats and softball games and cars that had driven up from the cities. The supper club was a place where people chose to be on the most memorable nights of their lives, and it was a pleasure to be at the center of it all. On Muriel's watch, a proper supper club meal began with a free relish tray and basket of bread with a round of brandy old fashions, and then a lavish amount of hearty cuisine with fish on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, and grasshoppers for dessert. So she gets right at the heart of what I think makes a supper club different than most restaurants. Mm -hmm is um that when you sit down you immediately get a plate of free food you're treated like a guest in someone's home as opposed to a a customer in a transactional relationship and that sets the tone you're also given more food than you should be able to eat in one sitting <laughs> the idea is that you'll take it home and it's a good value supper club meals are usually a bit more expensive than the typical meal in their area since they're often rural or in their vacation destinations they're rarely in cities uh, very typically, the supper club is a is in a is in a somewhat isolated location that could be a little hard to get to for outsiders, but nonetheless uh, is a magnet for its community and becomes a third space in a profound way for its community, a uh, place outside of work or home where people can get together and see their neighbors and their friends and stay as long as they like. And historically, there's been live music and entertainment and dancing at supper clubs. Less so these days, some still do that, but they're usually, <laughs> the ones that have survived are in buildings long enough to revive, <laughs> buildings large enough to revive that idea should they want to reconstitute the supper club as a entertainment complex, not merely a dining destination. So yeah, I see supper clubs as one of the more inclusive versions of a restaurant I've experienced. And one of the more community-based in terms of its relationship and place within its community, since they're almost always invariably owned by, um, almost always invariably, since they're <laughs> almost always owned by a local family and operated by that local family, uh, you've got an extremely high chance of meeting the separate club owner behind the bar, or if you wander into the kitchen, seeing him or her there. So that already positions the supper club in a more intimate way than a typical restaurant does within the confines of its community. So that's why I wanted to write about them. I grew up in a small town, a smallish town in southeastern Minnesota, where there were at least three within a 20 minute drive. And I worked in one as a teenager, and that also fueled my desire to write about them someday. You talk about the supper club being inclusive, but this community in the novel, there is also a, an establishment that I would call exclusive. There's the there's this you know sort of high end um, lake resort place with the fancy restaurant. Talk about how you kind of contrast those those two different establishments and and what that tells us about the kind of the nature of this community. Right. Yeah, the Lake Country of Northern Minnesota went through a 
pretty profound evolution in the early 20th century. There were resorts up there. I mentioned one in Reamer, Minnesota, that was kind of a getaway for Al Capone and his crew. (laughs) So there were some Tony resorts that catered to that set. But there had to be stuff for the regular family as well. And that's where the Supper Club comes in. The Supper Club emerged uh, out of Prohibition as a as a family restaurant. But since they also had full bars, they were places where adults could go uh, to celebrate an anniversary or um, a promotion or just a great day of fishing and have a few drinks and chum around with other adults. So, yeah, I wanted that contrast to just sort of illustrate the breadth of destinations and uh, lifestyles that existed in Minnesota then and and now, since there are still high-end resorts in northern Minnesota and more accessible, you know, cabins by the lake sort of sort of setups in campgrounds. There's a real socioeconomic strata that, uh, or a, a wide cross-section of socioeconomic strata that have visited and still visit northern Minnesota in the summertime. And there's something for everybody. So contrasting the Supper Club against that, I felt like positions the Supper Club is the more accessible mm-hmm. and welcoming and affordable option, and which it is for most. So we, we begin the novel, um, you, you alternate through uh, different time periods, which is something I've done in my novels. I always enjoy that. And we start out going, going back and forth a little bit between um, Mariel and her, her mom, Florence, um, when, her, when her mom is a child. And, but when we first meet Mariel, one of the things I noticed was within a, the first few sentences, she mentions pine trees, sapsuckers, deer. Like she mentions all these elements of the natural world. Talk, talk a little bit about her, her connection to the natural world and, and what, what role the nature plays in your, your novel in general. Nature is really important to me. I grew up feeling really integrated with it. I had a have a father who was a hydrogeologist and worked outside quite a bit. I was descended from farmers on both sides. And one of the things that makes Minnesota special to me is its is its uh, natural environment. And northern Minnesota in particular is pretty special. It was a place where my family and I went on vacation quite a bit growing up, usually on the lower end of the economic totem pole, more camping, uh, tent camping and cabins without running water as opposed to um, the expensive lodges of Al Capone. But nonetheless, that environment, um, the North Woods of Minnesota, really really resonated with me and resonate with me today it's a it's a pretty special place and i just tried to do it justice in the book i wanted to create characters that had a relationship with it that didn't take it for granted that noticed small changes in their environment and were attuned to them uh mariel in particular and i'd say her daughter julia even more so have a relationship with the natural world. I, yeah, it's important to me. And it's something that in a book about restaurants, I didn't want to ignore. Uh, when, when you go back to setting and the importance of setting and deciding 
what subgenre a novel might be in if this is a truly midwestern novel i wanted to lean into that even farther by talking about the environment that these restaurants were in and not just the restaurants themselves as shorthand for minnesota but the minnesota that existed before these restaurants and will exist for thousands of years after the pine trees the lakes the insects the birds that's uh that's the realm in which these people thrive and suffer and change and i want to call attention to that yeah one of the things about creating characters is we're, we're always writing about people who are different from ourselves. I, I, for instance, have never had a problem with writers who write across gender. I've had female protagonists in my books, but one of the things I find the most difficult is not writing across gender, but across age gaps, writing a character who's much, especially much younger than myself. And when we first meet Florence, she's, I think she's 12 years old. It's the 1930s. Um, can you talk a little bit about the challenge of, of sort of getting into the head of, of any character who's different from you, but especially in, in the case of someone who's much younger, how you know how do you how do you get in that headspace? Well, with Florence, at age twelve, I tried to put myself in the headspace of where I was when I was twelve and how I wanted to be perceived. I felt like I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to be grown up. I couldn't wait to be a teenager and an adult. I didn't want to be twelve. And I decided to make Florence like me in that regard, to make it a little easier to write a 12-year-old. I didn't write a, want to write a 12-year-old who was leaning really hard into being a child, but rather one that didn't want to be a child, didn't consider herself a child, but nonetheless would still display childish behavior when it suited her. When, <laughs> uh, when it was a card she could deal to affect a certain outcome. Uh, I wasn't above that. And so balancing that kind of immaturity with savviness with uh thinking you're smarter than you are but nonetheless want to be treated with respect to one's intelligence yeah i did my best to catalyze all those into 12 year old florence uh looking back on my childhood it certainly wasn't as rough as florence's so i did have some research to do there in terms of oh what kinds of things would she have encountered or what kind of compromises would have been visited on her how would that affect her point of view but in terms of thinking about a 12 year old i just tried to write from a place of great love and respect for them and generally when i write across age or gender that's the main tool i use i think what's the best and perhaps most surprising way i can write about this person in a way that i can infuse with a lot of love and respect while i write them Ned's mom says something interesting at some point. I don't remember the exact phrase, but she sort of indicates a certain guilt about being wealthy. Yeah, um, and and Ned obviously has some mixed feelings too about the the success of this chain of restaurants, which its success has necessarily meant the failure of of other restaurants that were there before who were who were not part of a chain. How does the whole idea of capitalism? And, and especially the notion that the goal of capitalism is to make as much money as possible, regardless of how you do it. How, how does that play into the novel? Right. It plays pretty significantly into Ned's storyline. He starts to feel that the compromises that capitalism is forcing upon his family's business are no longer tenable. He doesn't find the restaurant to be as appealing as it was when it was a kid. 
uh, then he doesn't find the restaurant to be as appealing as it was when he was a child. He knows firsthand, actually, some of the compromises that have occurred in the name of growth. And he can't look past them in the way that his father or his sister can. So there are a lot of realms in life in which capitalism has a corrosive effect. Healthcare probably most prominently, but our entire vertical structure as it relates to food production and consumption is high up there too. The things we do to this planet and ourselves in the means of selling food for profit uh, are a pretty tough pill to swallow. And Ned's in the midst of that. Ned has the the wisdom and the insight to examine some of those crises in his own life. But unfortunately for him, he also has a stake, a very personal and profound financial and emotional stake in the continued health of this capitalist restaurant franchise. Uh, so yeah, that's that's his dilemma, is how does he reconcile his knowledge that Jorby's isn't what it used to be, and it's only going to get worse with he needs it to get worse to continue to make money. One of the things I really admire about this this book and your other books is you you do a great job of creating characters really quickly. Like like a character walks onto the page and we feel like we know them without having to have page after page after page of of exposition or even seeing them in action. What what for you are the essentials of of creating a character and and doing it so that uh, so that your reader you know, feels like they know that person is within a page or two of, of meeting them for the first time. I try to put the character in a situation early that reveals what their boundaries are. And I try to do it in a surprising way. This wasn't the first way you... Well, let me take a step back here. Um, in my second novel, The Logger Queen of Minnesota... We meet Edith Magnuson when she's spotting an insect on the white trim of her windowsill, and she decides to nudge the insect outside into the grass. Like she doesn't swat it, doesn't kill it, just wants it to move because she's afraid it's vulnerable there and it's going to get caught by a bird. And then um, she's racked with guilt that she's just ruined its vacation, that perhaps it wanted a break from the grass. <laughs> And now she's gone and screwed it up. Yeah, I try to think of situations like that that might be really subtle in terms of their physical action, but reveal the the heart of these people. And yeah, I throughout um, Supper Club, I tried to do the same thing. Um, you know, we meet Mariel when she's walking to the Supper Club, and she. Um, gets encountered by a neighbor who informs her that her mom is waiting to get picked, you know, waiting for her to pick her up at church. We don't know anything about this relationship yet, but on the, on the way to pick up her mother at church, Meryl hits a deer. And one of her first thoughts is I'm dead. Oh, 
well, now who's going to pick up my mom at church? <laughs> and I thought, okay, yeah, I, I know her. I know her now. Like, this is a person who's just, she's got a lot of plates spinning, you know. She's, she's just been besieged with responsibility her whole life. Like, even in death, she's responsible. Yeah. There's there's gonna be, there's something going unattended because she's dead and she's she feels guilty about that. I mean, ultimately, she meets a person within a couple pages that begins to absolve her of some of this guilt. Thankfully, and her willingness to follow this person explicates some new aspects of Mariel's personality that I was delighted to pursue. But that said, when I introduce a character like Mariel or like Edith in my previous book, I want to show them at their most typical like when they encounter a situation what's a way they could describe it that no one else could or what's a conclusion they could come to internally that oh makes me feel like all right i i can draw other conclusions now based on this one and i the two examples i given were <laughs> my versions of that for these last two books it, it, it's so much fun to think of these situations like that's one of my favorite parts of writing is coming up with the initial conflicts that my characters encounter that draw out their personalities. What one of reviewer that I read said of your book that the characters are fully realized, sometimes unlikable, but always as flawed and compelling as real people. Uh, the word flawed is the one that stuck out to me because, yeah, if we write characters who are, who are perfect people, then they're not going to be very believable. Um, hmm. Tell us a little bit about the flaws of, of Mariel and Ned in particular, maybe, maybe Florence as well. Right, right. Yeah, Ned's flaws I've spoken to a bit earlier in that he's born into a business that he doesn't have the head or the heart for. Yeah. And he knows it. And so he's wrestling with that conflict. Mariel, I think, can be as stubborn as her mom. You know, she's the kind of boss that isn't super good at delegating authority, kind of wants to do it herself. Like, I'll just do it myself. You know, and as such, doesn't create time for her to process trauma. Like, she has a miscarriage early in the book and she thinks she's got to go back to work right away. I consider that line of thinking a flaw in Mariel's context that she won't allow herself the space to grieve what for her is a loss and to recover from a physical and emotional body blow, literally. I feel like her encountering Brenda is part of what wakes her up from that. You know, she almost is besieged by her level of responsibility to others that I'm not sure she perceives that other people don't necessarily expect from her. She's kind of um, overloaded with anxiety, and it expresses itself in ways that really corrode her uh, from within. Uh, but that said, she's one of the kindest and most intelligent, sweetest people in the book, too. Yeah. Uh, Florence, however, yeah, is quite a bit more unlikable to a lot of readers uh she's a character that was traumatized as a child has developed a pretty oblique and self-centered coping mechanism or mechanisms around that and as an adult is a pretty selfish and self-centered person that said one of my goals for writing the book was to 
demonstrate how people can change and how what sort of situations can draw out the best from a person, even a person we might have dismissed as being uh, a toxic narcissist who can <laughs> like are these people capable of of redemption? Uh, <laughs> that's a that's a question I, I I asked myself in setting Florence into motion. Yeah, yeah. There's a moment early in the novel where Ned almost meets Mariel. He 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 sees her. He he's trying to decide whether he's going to chase her down, and then and then he just kind of becomes he's convinced that she's the one, even though he's just sort of glimpsed her. And then a few months later, he he happens upon her at at the supper club. What what role do you see the idea of fate playing in in your novels, in fiction in general, in in the world? Uh... Oh wow! I'm so glad you asked that question, Charlie. This is fun to answer because no one's asked this yet. Um, <laughs> in my mind, I I, I don't want to put thoughts in the mind of the reader. I'm just another reader at this point, so this is just my opinion. In my opinion, he didn't see her five months before. That was somebody else sure. that nonetheless <laughs> put this idea in motion that, oh, there's this ideal woman out there for him. And that's su such something Ned would do. Like any woman that's accessible to him easily, he's going to find a problem with it or he's going to be too lily levered to pursue. But someone who's this impossible ideal, oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. It'll keep him from actually getting around to doing anything positive. <laughs> in that realm you know that dating in the meantime it's his excuse like i don't have to date i've already met the perfect woman and i don't know if i'll ever see her again um it gets him off the hook so when he does but when he does see her again he surprises himself at his initiative he's like well there she is uh he, and he judges this woman based not on her appearance he judges her on an action he believes she's done an act of generosity towards a stranger he thinks that's what i'm looking for in a person and once five months has passed and he once five months have passed and he realizes that I'm probably not going to easily encounter this person again. I think that um, projection of his really starts to calcify. So when he does see someone he believes to be her, which is Muriel, he thinks, oh, I better get her. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I better back my back my uh, hopes and dreams up here because. If this is her, I can't let her get away again. Yeah. And um, yeah, their romance blossoms from there. And later in the book, there appears an awful lot of subjectivity around Ned's story. However, Ned is adamant that his version of the story is the correct one. Yeah. And I love that. You know, he's, I think it was an important lesson for him to have a goal that was his own that he had to achieve of his own initiative and action that no one else could do for him because he was a guy that had everything handed to him from childhood. He certainly didn't have to work to have his position or wealth. So for him to idealize a woman, chase her and earn her love was a tremendous um, boost of, uh, was a tremendous con was a tremendous confidence booster for Ned yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and important for his development. Yeah. Um, one, one of the chapters early on with Florence, she um, she's a child. She has an interaction with a, with a man. And the last sentence of the chapter was, it was hard to imagine that in time she would ruin this man and everything he loved. 
to me, it's also hard to imagine a better sentence to end a chapter with. Like that's, <laughs> that's pretty. Oh, thanks. That's you know. so kind. Um, but can can you talk a little bit about how about the structure of a chapter? How do you like to begin it? How does it? Mm. You know, what does the the line look like? And and how? What do you want to accomplish in, in the end in that last sentence? Yeah, I love to open a chapter with a question or a puzzle or some kind of contradictory statement or a statement that we soon find to be more complex and contradictory than initially implied, like uh, the Lars sentence in my first book. Or or, or, or uh, throw out an argument that's difficult to defend. Mm -hmm. I like to do that too at the beginning of chapters. And then I have to spend the chapter attempting to defend it from that character's point of view. Yeah. And uh, because I worked in TV for 14 years, mostly in unscripted television. I learned the value of the act break, learned the value of ending an act on a question or on an incomplete action. I still have that instinct kick in when I end a chapter and I go, all right, I can't button it up here. Got to make people turn to the next page. Got to make people sit through the commercials. Uh, <laughs> how can I end this on a note of potential resolution that nonetheless invites further action or scrutiny and this kind of it sort of leads into another issue that i've, I've talked to especially because my most recent book was a thriller and i talked to a lot of thriller writers about the art of information management um but i think it really applies to, to all kinds yeah. of roles and 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 how do you how do you handle this question of who knows what when both including when do the characters know certain things and when does it when does the reader know certain things so that so that they know enough to move the story forward, but they don't know so much that we're giving away, you know, plot twists that or character changes that happen later on. Wow, that's a wonderful question. And yeah, it's extremely important in plot-based narratives. Um, and as a TV producer, you know, it was all plot-based. Mm -hmm. That's all we did. And just like with novel writing, you try not to withhold information too much. You know, you try not to rely on that particular trick. What I try to do is write close third. So information coming in is subjective. Information is incomplete. Uh, characters have perceptions that may or may not be accurate. So I don't want a character to experience something in real time that they don't fully communicate to the reader, i.e. withhold information. But I'm okay with them having an incorrect read on a situation yeah. that can get disabused later. So the reader will get information that they need, but it may not be the correct information or the complete information. That's how I parse it out. Yeah. So I look at each character and where that character's point of view is going to fall in the book and go, okay, how can they daisy chain this narrative? Like, how can they provide a piece that isn't so much, that isn't so large a slice of the pie that the audience will be sated <laughs> or, you know, bored with concurrent events, uh, <laughs> subsequent events, but, you know, just sort of moves the crystal a little bit. Uh, how, how do you do it, Charlie, as someone who's written across different genres? You know, it's... Um... It's sort of it's sort of different with every book, um, but yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. I think I think you have to. I always try, try to be at least as aware of how 
um, of what a character knows as I am of, of what a reader knows, you know, um, that, that that's the best way to, to manage, you know, it's sort of like what you said, the best way to manage what, what the reader is learning is that the, the character is learning it. So the character is not necessarily withholding things. They just haven't learned the big thing yet, you know, um, but there's a point, um, in this, in this book fairly early on when Mariel asks Ned if he would call his father a happy person. I wonder if you could talk about how mm. some of the major characters in this novel might define happiness. Wow, that's a lovely question. I feel Ned's father would define happiness as a success in the business realm, mm -hmm. you know, as someone who is the kind of person who doesn't spend a lot of time with his family. He's out in the world making money for his family. You could never convince this guy that he's not a family man, even if he's completely devoted his life to pursuing wealth um, instead of actually um, building equity and uh, emotional relationships with his children and spouse. Like, yeah, uh, Ned is the effect of that. He lacks confidence. He's got his mother's heart and mother's point of view since he spent more time with her. He would define happiness as um, having a a more complete family life, I believe. That's what he's aiming for most of the book, is building a family and spending time with them in a way that his father didn't. Like He looks back at that contradiction in his father's life as something that he wants to correct. Mariel, I feel feels happiest at the supper club. And that is where she connected with family members that saw her for who she was and gave her duties that made her feel valuable and a part of the family in a larger way. She had to get the hell away from her mom and found shelter with her grandmother and grandfather at this supper club. So when they skipped Florence and passed it on to her, I think that's where the locus of her identity and therefore happiness emerged. Yeah. Uh, with Florence, I think Florence has a notion of family that's unrealistic, uh, partially because of the way that she relates to it. She's an extremely paranoid parent. Um, relationships to her do not come easily. She nonetheless has a lot of friends and acquaintances. She doesn't have a ton of people close to her, but she's got a very large orbit of people in her life that you could call a community. She's very involved in her community. And I think she views happiness as someone who's like loved and respected by all. I think she sees herself as a matriarch and wants to be the kind of, what's the word? Centerpiece, home fire of a family. Yeah. Yeah. Wants to be the grandmother that everyone wants to spend Christmas with. Yeah. And tries to manipulate that through giving lavish gifts and uh, extending generosity. But these gifts and generosity are always on her own terms. Yeah. She can't see past her own selfishness and narcissism to understand what the people in her family actually want or want from her. She only gives what she feels uh, <laughs> the situation calls for, which is always what she wants. Yeah. Um, so she's got a lot to learn in terms of reconciling her idea of happiness with actually making the people around her happy. Yeah. 
since she <laughs> since <clears throat> since typically Florence does not make her relatives happy. Yeah. <laughs> she stresses them out and aggravates them. Um all, <laughs> all the while she she's honestly saying, like, I'm trying to help you. Yeah. I'm trying to make you happier. I'm trying to make your life easier. When in reality she's needlessly complicating their lives. Um so yeah, um her her uh ultimate joy in life would be to reacquire the home that she'd last lived in when her family unit was still intact, when her father and mother were still together and she was living in this house with her mom and dad and people were still happy. Yeah. Like she wants to recreate that, this impossibly irretrievable thing from her past. Yeah. And her lifelong goal is actually to reacquire that specific house, mm-hmm. which at some point becomes impossible for her. And yeah, that chase, that vain, that vain chase is almost, what's the word? Sisyphean, I can't say yeah. that word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, like, like something out of Greek like mythology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we'll begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Consequential. Okay. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? A lot. That's one word. Yeah. A-L-O-T. Um, where's your favorite place to write? My office where I'm sitting right now. Where could At you home. where could you never write? There's a lot of places I could never write. For whatever reason, the first place I thought of was the death road in the Bolivian Andes, where I've <laughs> been. Yeah. It's a place that requires enough uh, um, vigilance and awareness that you can't multitask when you're on it. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Probably the Oxford comma. Okay. What's the first book you remember reading? The first book I remember reading was Cars and Trucks and Things That Go by Richard Scarry. Oh, yeah. But the first adult book I remember reading and enjoying, like on its terms, not on mine, like one that I felt I got was uh, Double Earners by James Joyce mm-hmm. in high school. What are you reading now? I'm reading The Overstory by Richard Powers. What book would you like to have written? Mm. Wow, so many. First, first one that comes to mind. I guess is Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. I just love yeah. the structure and the storytelling in that book. I wish I thought of that. Yeah. What <laughs> sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Wow. Science fiction? Mm-hmm. And finally, I love science what, fiction, but I've never thought about writing it. Yeah. Finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Wow. I don't think about that. Um, you're you're writing about me and my family. Hmm. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Jay Ryan Straddle, whose novel Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club will be available April 18th, wherever books are sold. Jay, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. I'll be taking my holiday in May this year, so we'll have no new episodes next month, but come back in June for lots of great summer reading and authors from our upcoming Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors on September 23rd. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.